You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. The question is, what is this book that's in your hands? Um, just about all of us have a Bible in our house. Um, we have, we, you know, it says Holy Bible on the front, right? Um, and we, for some of us, it's not very often used. It's, it's like the, maybe it's the family Bible that sits up on the mantle, or it's tucked away in some storage bin, or it sits on your nightstand and collects dust, or maybe you read it pretty often. But regardless of your use of the Bible, the question that we're, we're asking this morning is, can you trust it? Can you trust that what we have today is what was written thousands of years ago? Um, so some say that the Bible just represents an old way of living. Some would say that it's unreliable. Um, and like many old documents, uh, it's not saying that the original thing that it said because it's been changed over the years. Some, like Karl Marx, would say that this book is just a way of hypnotizing people and controlling them so that those in control can take advantage of the willing followers. And that's why the, the word has been tampered with. And what, what we had thousands of years ago is changed because they're just trying to control us. So Karl Marx would say that. Then there are some uh, who see that it's an important book. Maybe you, you know, like, yeah, the Bible is super important. I should definitely read it. But you don't really know why. Um, you don't know why it's important. Um, you don't really know if it's reliable, but you're, you're like, I think it's pretty important. People treat it like it's important. Um, and then others say that it's the very word of God. Um, they say that it's not only accurate, but it leads us to true and unending life with a person named Jesus, who, act, who was actually God, become man, performed wondrous deeds, died a wrongful death, an unjust death, and then rose from the grave um, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the same Jesus would come again for his, for his people, the church, and establish a perfect world free from evil that lasts forever. Um, and that is his church that believes that. Regardless of which group you fall into, this will be helpful for you. My, help, my goal is to help you understand uh, why we can trust the book that's in our hands is not distorted, but faithfully copied. Uh, what you have in your hands is nearly the exact same thing that has been read for thousands of years. So let's consider whether we can really trust Scripture. Um, so I want to introduce this by talking about the game Telephone. Um, do you guys remember in grade school playing the game Telephone, right? So you start out by telling this kid, um, you know, I would like to buy a hamburger. And by the end of telling 10 kids you end up with something totally different. And it's like, horses frolic in the fields. And you're like, how in the world did it get to that point? And, but as you're telling people, at, by the end, it reaches, it's something totally different than what it began to be. There are a number of historians who are atheists um, and people who are very critical of the Bible who would say that this is precisely the way that we got Scripture. It started out one way, but by the end, we ended up with something totally different. So we're, we're, going to, we're going to evaluate the evidence. We're not just going to assume, okay, it's something old, which means that it's unreliable, which is kind of the way that some people view things. Oh, that's old. It's unreliable. We don't know what really happened because it's old. Let's actually evaluate the evidence and see if that points to the truth. 
if this is really how things went down. Um, the reliability of the New Testament is far easier to talk about than the, than the Old Testament. Um, and we're going to break this up into two things. Honestly, there is so much information for this, guys. Um, and it's really hard to whittle it down into like a 30-minute talk. But we're going to talk about the Old Testament first. Um, the Old Testament was developed over around a thousand years, and it involved dozens of authors and editors. Um, the New Testament was written by about 10 men and scribes over a period of 50 years. So there's a pretty big contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's much harder to talk about the Old Testament than it is the New Testament. However, um, we, I hope that through the information that I show you, you can see that there is, we can have confidence in the Bible that we're reading. Um, the Old Testament also describes over 3,000 years of history, ranging from the origins of this world to the rise and fall of kingdoms and empires in various places, such as the Northeast, Af- Northeast Africa and Southwestern Asia. Uh, whereas the New Testament really just talks about a, a very small region on the west bank of uh, the Jordan, right? And it's, it's talking about the, a small group of people and describing their experiences and seeing the risen Lord, right? Um, so it's a, it's a big contrast, origins to Jesus versus just Jesus in a, around 50 years. So we're going to start out by talking about the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is a story that talks about God saving a single group of people. So it talks about how, why are things the way they are? There's evil in the world. Why are they the way they are? Well, we, we see in the beginning that Adam sinned. That God created a perfect world, placed mankind in that world to be essentially the garden keepers of his good world, right? And instead of saying that we trust you and we are going to faithfully keep this world that you have placed us as rulers over. So they're, they're invested with God's authority and they are going to be faithful stewards of the world. Instead, they do the one thing that they're not supposed to do and they, they essentially give God the middle finger and say, we know what we want and we're going to do that because that's better than what you want for us. And they choose to d- define good and evil on their own terms. And from that time, we see that there's brokenness and sin in the world. So the, the rest of the Old Testament is describing how God has saved a particular group of people in order to make them the, the faithful ones who would restore the entire world, right? So in the way that that's described is in the Abrahamic covenant, whenever God is talking to Abraham and he says, I will make you a light to the nations, okay? So they are going to be this light, kind of we, talk, we talked about this at the, the candle, candlelight service, um, but... This light, it, it expels the dark, darkness, but it doesn't extinguish everything, right? But just like our, our light is being spread around like we were at that candlelight service, where we're passing it all the way around the church, Israel was supposed to be this light to the nations. They were going to be people who represented who Yahweh God was to the whole world. And instead, what they did was copy the world. And they worshipped other gods, and they practiced what other, the other people groups did. They said, we want a king like them. They had cult prostitutes. They sacrificed their own children at times. And they diverged very far from what God had intended for them. But throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures, we see that it's pointing forward towards a Messiah, one who would come and restore all of this. So that's the point of the Old Testament. 
Um, so how do we know that this could be reliable? Um, first off, how did we get the Old Testament? We see a glimpse of this in Exodus 24. So turn to Exodus 24 with me. And we're just going to read a quick sample of how we got the Bible. Now, I am not dealing with the inspiration of Scripture, which is how we talk about how the Bible was written. Are these the very words of God? Are they the words of men? I'm not talking about that. Daniel will cover that in the weeks to come. I'm mainly talking about can we trust the documents that we have that have been passed down to us. So, this is a glimpse of how we, we see these original documents. All right, everybody look this way. This is going to be, this is important. All right, autographs, we typically think of like, oh, you saw Will Smith and you got his autograph, right? An autograph is really referring to the original document. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute, guys. Um, so the original document, who wrote the document? So we're going to look at how we got the autograph of Exodus, okay? This is how it's described here in Exodus 24, verses 4 through 7. Uh, we're really just going to focus on 4 and 7. So verse 4 says, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rose up early in the morning, and built an altar under the hill, and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And then in verse 7, And he took the book of the covenant, and he read it to the audience of the people. And they said, All that the Lord hath said, we will do, and be obedient, which we totally know was true. They were obedient, super obedient, and they, they fulfilled the law perfectly, right? They did not. Um, but God gave Moses the law. He was given the words to write down, and he, he pins the words of Genesis and Exodus, and he is given the, the very words of God to communicate to the people, and that's what the autograph is, okay? That's, that's the original, all right? However, we're talking about 3,000 years ago. That was about 3,000 years ago that Moses would have penned the autograph. So can we, can we really trust that we have that same thing? We, we get a glimpse into what, what it looked like to have preserved and to have recovered these scrolls. They would have been written on scrolls of animal skin um, and kind of, uh, kind of like a roller like you would, you would roll out your Christmas cookies with, right? Except it's a document that's rolled up on top of that with animal skins. And the, the really bad thing was, unless they were in Egypt, which they weren't, um, these things were not going to be preserved. Now, they've recovered tons of documents from, like, Egypt uh, that have been buried under the sands, and they, they are excellent at preserving. But we do not have those autographs. However, these, these were precious, precious documents. There was no way that they were going to let anything happen to them. And we see that even in times of exile, and exile means they were banished from their country, People came in to Jerusalem and burnt the city down and removed all the people from there and made them slaves in Babylon and elsewhere. Um, and in exile, we see that the prophet Jeremiah gives special instructions to a, a scribe named Baruch. All right? So this is in Jeremiah 36, 4 and 6 through 8. So in verse 4, it says, Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll all the dictation of Jeremiah and the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. And then Jeremiah gives him further, further instructions for this. So you are to go, and on the day of fasting, in the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation, and you shall read them also in the hearing of all men in Judah who came from their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord, and that everyone will turn from his evil way. 
For great is the anger and wrath of the Lord that he has pronounced against his people. And Baruch the son of Neriah did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll uh, the words of the Lord and the Lord's house. And he added many other things to these. Jeremiah is given a word from the Lord to try and turn the people of Israel back towards himself, right? Towards Yahweh. And Baruch pens these, these words. We later see that the prophet Ezra compiles these, these books, and he reads them aloud. And we, we see that there are times where they, they literally stood up. So like right now, we're going to be in here for about 30 minutes. And some, sometimes that is so much that some of you need naps in the middle. So I, I've, I've been there, um, which is fine. But Ezra, <laughs> Ezra and others, they would, at times, they would uncover these scrolls, and people hadn't heard them in so long. And they would stand up, and all the people of Israel would gather around, and they would just read. And the people would listen for hours and hours and hours, all day. And this would take multiple days. And they cherished the word of God. And we see a glimpse of what it looked like for these scrolls to be buried and then uncovered in the, the story of Second Kings with um, King Josiah. So, in the story of Kings you have this time where the kings were just horrible. They were just really bad. It's, it would be like us having just a, a string of bad presidents who forgot the Constitution existed, okay? And then, like, 300 years from now, they're like, hey, we found this document in the archives, and it's the Constitution, and it's really good. I think it would bring a lot of justice to our land, and I know we've been ignoring it for a long time. And then, so here's what happens. Josiah learns that this, this, these scrolls have been uncovered. And he's like, what? What are these? So the, the priest reads the scroll to him. And what he does immediately is he tears his clothes off. All right? Which this was like an outward symbol of like, oh my goodness, I am disgusting and evil, and I have not been following the ways of the Lord. And this was whenever there was child sacrifice going on um, in, in the nation of Israel. And they were, they were worshiping other gods. They were so far departed from the life that God had meant for them. And he rents his clothes, and then he, he immediately orders that these, these scrolls would be read before the people so that they too could learn the word of the Lord. So the, they would, there would be times where they did not know the word of the Lord. They did not know what had been written down. But these things had been preserved. And they would, they would pull them out, and they would read them, and it changed everyone's life. Like, it, it changed their, their mind. It helped them understand who God was, and they trusted in God. However, um, can we trust that what we have today is the same thing that they were talking about 2,500 years ago? One sample of this is what we see um, in the great scroll of Isaiah. All right? So, honestly, we, up until... 70 years ago, we had no manuscript evidence from before, like, let's see, the codex is, we had, we had one from 8900, okay, so 8900, so we're talking about 1,100 years ago, that's an old book, right, however, it's about 1,000, it's, it's more than 1,000 years, it's about 1,500 years after the fact, uh, that Isaiah had been written, that the Old Testament had been written. So we, we were depending on documents that were 1,500 years old. 
Now, it's easy for someone to say, this is a game of telephone, whenever we don't have anything for 1,500 years, right? It's easy for someone to say, how can you trust something that's, we don't have a document for it for 1,500 years? How would you trust that? However, what happened 50 years ago is they uncovered um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you could show those caves, all right? So it's in these caves that it's, this is how the story goes. There's a, there's a shepherd boy who is looking for his lost sheep, and he throws a rock into one of these caves, and instead of hearing a sheep bleeding or any, anything like that, he hears um, a pot shatter. So they, he climbs up into one of these caves, and what he finds is documents, very old documents made of what we call papyrus. Um, and they, they uncovered, now you can show the great Isaiah, Isaiah scroll. They uncovered an entire scroll of the book of Isaiah. And this was written before Jesus came to this earth, 100 years before. So we're talking about only 600 years um, after it had been written. So this is a very early document. Now, if the game of telephone rings true, that we've, we've gotten so far apart, you know, because, you know, I started out by saying that I would like to have a cheeseburger, but by the end, we're talking about horses frolicking in a field, and it's totally different because each person is kind of forgetting, and there are things omitted, and things change, then we're going to end up, if we evaluate this, and evaluate the thing from 900 AD, we're going to see two completely different things. But here's the result. Let's go uh, to, yep, so this is the one from 900 AD. This is the Aleppo Codex. This is what they had based all of the Old Testament on up to that point. Go to the next slide. Oh, um, maybe I didn't make it in there. But the result is that there had been some changes in spelling. So from in a 1,000 years, what we saw is some changes in spelling. We saw some different conjunctions. So like and or but or then, something like that. And we saw a few extra words in the old document, in the 100 BC document. But for the most part, we saw a great unity. I mean, like 99% unity in a thousand years of copying it down. So what we did not see is a complete change. We saw a thousand years of faithful scribes copying down exactly what was on the scrolls. So we can have great confidence that this, is, this wasn't just a, a fluke, that we ended up with the document that we did and that it was really accurate, but that whenever these things came into the hands of the people of Israel, they faithfully copied it throughout the years. And what we have today in the Old Testament is what they had thousands and thousands of years ago. It's one and the same. We can trust the copies that we have. God has preserved his word. All right, so then the New Testament. That's the next, oh yeah, there we go. Spelling differences, some different conjunctions, and a few words from the Dead Sea Scrolls do not appear in the later copy. That's all that there was. And we, we have this, there are people who literally their job is to do textual criticism and to say, what is, what is going to be the best translation, the best way to copy the information that we have into our English Bibles? Um, and most of the Old Testament is pretty unified because there wasn't a great great deal of variance um, in older text and newer text. But we have tons, thousands of manuscripts 
A lot of them are later. But we found some like the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran that are very, very old. And they've proved that there is a reliable textual transmission. All right. The New Testament. The New Testament tells the story of who Jesus was, what he did, and what that means. So the Old Testament led up to Jesus. The Gospels revealed Jesus. And the writings after the Gospels explain what Jesus' life and resurrection mean. It's made up of 27 books, right? And if you compare, if anyone, if you hold up how much of your Bible is the New Testament, then you see that it's pretty small, right, uh, compared to the rest of the Bible. It's about a fourth of your Bible. Um, the New Testament books are mostly letters. So 27 books or letters, they're, they're much shorter than the Old Testament documents. Um, but they were written mainly in that first century after Jesus' death. They were written by eyewitnesses. Um, so there, there are some people who would say, how can you trust that like, what you have in the Bible is really what was originally included? Because there are, there are tons of people who, who would say that uh, there, was like, there was just the Council of Nicaea, and these people got together in the Catholic Church, and they said, all right, we want that one, we don't want that one, we want that one, we don't want that one. And they just kind of arbitrarily decided what was going to be included in our New Testament. So is that really how it happened? Was it like the game of telephone? Was it, was it the same thing where, yeah, it started out with Jesus um, and like a very wise teacher, and then it developed into Jesus as God? Pull up the Jefferson Bible. All right, so the Jefferson Bible. How many of you have heard of the Jefferson Bible? Show of hands. All right. So Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, he was our third president. He penned the Declaration of Independence. Great political leader, right? Jefferson had a great deal of respect for Jesus as a teacher. Jefferson had no respect for Jesus as someone who performed miracles or someone who rose from the grave. He believed that the Bible had, was exactly that, that the game of telephone had developed Jesus into something he was not. And we could get to who historical Jesus was if we just clip out all of the pieces that are extraordinary, that are supernatural, and just end up with the teachings of Jesus, his stories, the things that he said that were really wise, and you end up with, that's historical Jesus. What, what we have now, unreliable, historical Jesus, is all the unmiraculous things that he said. Now, those are great things, and there are great wisdom principles to live by, but Christ's, Christ's death and resurrection is what the, the entire faith is dependent on. If you don't believe that, then that's, this, your whole faith is a lie. That's the whole purpose of this thing, is that Jesus conquered death in the grave, and because of that, we can trust in him with our life, that he will take us from death to life. So, Jefferson believed this, and many others have written the, namely, Bart Ehrman, is a, he's a scholar from UNC Chapel Hill. Um, if you like UNC basketball, I grew up a UNC fan. Uh, but he's a professor there, and he, he is big on historical Jesus. He says, we can't trust what Scripture says. We can't trust the New Testament. We need to get, go under the New Testament and find out what's behind the New Testament before all the legends and the stories that developed into Jesus rising from the grave and to uncover what is the historical Jesus. So is, is it a game of telephone that's unreliable? Let's look at the evidence. Um, one of the reasons that people would say that it's unreliable is because we don't have the autographs. 
right? The autographs, those original documents. Um, and a lot of this is dependent on the fact that people thought that once the New Testament had been penned, a document would last about 20 years, right? They said if, if John wrote John in 60 AD, 20 years later, that document's gone, and they're relying on copies. And then, so you're in 80 AD, you're, you're on a copy. In 100 AD, you're on a copy of a copy. In 120 AD, you're on a copy of a copy of a copy. And you're getting further and further and further. So that's what they thought. But they've, they've made great strides in archaeology, and they've uncovered libraries. of These are ancient libraries, some with 12 books, some with up to 1,000 books. And what they found it, through letters with actual dates that are really helpful in helping us understand how these old manuscripts worked is that people really cherished manuscript copies, all right? So we have all printed Bibles. No one ha- Does anyone here have a handwritten Bible? No, all right? We all have printed Bibles because we live on this side of the Gutenberg Press. Before, the only way that you owned a book is if someone actually sat down and wrote the entire book. And if you can imagine, even with a printed copy, trying to write down the entire Bible, that would take a long time. Those were precious manuscripts. And what they found in these libraries is that these, uh, these books that were the autographs that were, that were written um, originally and were, were passed around even for people to read and use, they were so carefully handled and so carefully kept track of in these libraries that they would last for 150 to 500 years. So whenever we get to um, Papyrus 50, 52, so let's look at Papyrus 52, PP 52, or P52. Um, it's a little scrap. It's a, just a little... There we go. Yeah, all right. So this is in a, a museum. This is Papyrus 52. Papyrus was this type of plant. It's a, it's a papyrus plant. And they would take strips of the papyrus plant and they would layer them in almost like a basket, go over it and over until they were creating a piece of paper. And this revolutionized, like this was a revolutionary new technology. Up to this point, you had to use animal hides that really, they would, they would fall apart more easily. But papyrus lasted a really long time. They were able to preserve these far better, and they were a much better way to be able to copy these things down. Papyrus 52 um, was written in the 2nd century. Most people estimate between 130 and 140 A.D., John's autograph, or John's original document, so we just study the book of John for the better part of a year, right? And the book of John was written in the late first century. Uh, some people would say like 60, some people later in, in like 80, but somewhere in that time range. And we've only got maybe 50 years in between that, that scrap and the original, right? Now, what they had depended on up to this point was a codex that was far older, all right? So in our KJV, all right, so if you have the King James Version, they depended on translating that from a single codex that was about 900 years old, so pretty far removed. But whenever some of, some of these ancient dump sites were uncovered, 
they found scraps of Scripture, and they found entire pages of Scripture. Um, they, they even found parts of Matthew um, and of another gospel with over half of, them, half of them included in that. And when they compared it up against what they had from 900 A.D., what they found is that there were not many changes. Most of the chi- changes, which this happens, uh, is spelling changes and conjunctions, right? And if, if you think about you copying down a book for hours and hours and hours, and I can't spell super well, probably some of you are in that same boat, if, if you just look at the word and then you write it down, you're going to end up with some spelling changes, right? But we're not talking about changes where it was like, oh, Jesus didn't rise from the grave, and then all of a sudden, Jesus rose from the grave. That's not how things happened. They were copying down exactly what had been written, and there were some spelling changes. There were some conjunction changes. But these older manuscripts, like P52, this is the oldest manuscript of the New Testament that we have, um, proves the reliability. This looks like almost nothing, I'm, I'm sure. But that on one side, we have part of John 8, and then on the other side, we have part of John 9. And whenever they compared this up against what was much later, what they found is very reliable um, translation process or copying process. It, there was not a divergence. It wasn't greatly different. They found a lot of reliability in what we currently have. So what we found is that instead of these, these autographs being gone and we're, we're relying on copies of copies, we find that the, the original autographs are actually probably still in existence when P52 was written. So whenever you've got the scribe copying down John at this point, he's able to compare it up against what John actually wrote. So instead of the game of telephone being from here, copy of copy of copy of copy of copy of copy of copy, and then we're really far from the original, what we end up with is even this guy over here, maybe 100 years after the fact, is able to go back to the original source and try to see, is this the same? So whenever people would come up with these, these other Gospels or they would, they would maybe mis, miscopy things and things, there would be errors, all that they had to do was go back to the original. So you have a, a bishop of the church named Irenaeus, and this is what he said uh, in in the second century, late second century, he said, if, if you think that your copy is unreliable, then go, go to, I think it was Alexandria, go to Alexandria and check it against the autograph. And for a long time, people said, there's no way that the autograph was there. He just means a copy. But what we found from those ancient libraries and that the, the word of the text is preserved is that that probably was the autograph. It was still around in the late second century and they were able to check it up against that. So we can have great confidence in what has been passed down is exactly what the New Testament and Old Testament authors have uh, copied faithfully. All right, so that gets us through those beginning portions. And now, how did we get it into English? Because believe it or not, the Bible was not written in English. The Bible was written in, um, in the Old Testament, it was written in, uh, in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic. And then in the New Testament, it was all written in Greek. So how do we have an English version? So this is actually a very dark spot in church history, right? What happened was 
People cared about the text a lot. The language was changing. More people were speaking Latin. And you have Jerome, who was, who, he was a church scholar who lived in Jerusalem, and he copied the whole thing into Latin, which was super useful because everybody could read it. Um, everybody could hear it in their own language. The priests were able to read it and to teach it in Latin. Super important translation. But as they kept going, they kept using the Vulgate. So that was like late 300s AD. All the way up until the 1500s, they continued to use the Vulgate, which sounds like, ah, who cares? But people didn't speak Latin in 1500s. People spoke Middle English. People spoke German. People spoke completely different languages. And what you ended up with was people who are priests and bishops um, and the Pope and the Catholic Church were the only people who knew how to read Scripture. And they would teach it in Latin. They would read it in Latin. They were the only ones who, could, who had access to the Bible. And none of you who are out here would ever have access to the Bible because you didn't know the original language. You didn't know, and it's not even the original, it's just a translation, the, the Latin language. And some of the priests began to understand this. You had people like John Huss. You had people like Wycliffe um, and people like William Tyndale. And what they did is they decided, hey, you know what would be really good? If everybody could read the Bible, which sounds like a duh thing to us, right? But this didn't exist before. And so what they did is they copied it down into the common language. And the Catholic Church, when discovering this, decided to kill them. All right? Because people should not have access to the Scripture, but instead only the priests should have access to the Scriptures. So this was a book, if you had it in your common tongue, that you could be killed for. And years after, Wycliffe had, been, had uh, translated the Bible, and he translated it from the Latin, but years after Wycliffe had translated the Bible into the common Middle English, they, he, he, de- he was dead at this point. 30 years after the fact, they go to a council and they declare him a heretic. And they, bury, they dig up his bones and they burn his bones. That's how much they hated that he had translated the Bible into the common tongue. So this was a dangerous game to play, to, to be translating the Bible into the common tongue. But something changed all of this, and this was um, the Gutenberg printing press. All right? Things went from having to be copied by hand and takes long, a really long time, and only few people could afford a book. I mean, if you have to copy down the entire thing, right? But Gutenberg changes all of this. And the first thing that he prints is the Bible. And one of the first really big breakthroughs in biblical transmission was that a guy named Erasmus compiled all of the sources of the Greek and made a Greek New Testament. And he published this, which sounds like, okay, who cares? No one, no one like knows Greek. But there was a monk named Martin Luther. Right, we'll see. Yeah, so Erasmus, he publishes the Greek Bible, and he's super stoked about it. He's actually just really proud of himself. He's not much of a Christian himself. But he's, he knows that he has done a really awesome thing. Like, this hasn't been done in years and years and years. And a guy named Martin Luther gets a hold of this Bible. And what he does is translates the entire thing into the common tongue of the German people. And he publishes the German Bible. He also goes to the Hebrew, and he translates the Old Testament into the common tongue. And this changes everything. This, this is really the thing that ignites the Protestant Reformation, the break with the Catholic Church, 
And what this isn't about is church politics, right? What this is about is every single person being able to have access to God's word and to know God. Instead of you having to go to a priest to know God, you could know God by reading his word because it was in your own language. And this was high treason in the Catholic Church. I mean, people are killed left and right for this. Um, later, we see William Tyndale. He, he does this same thing. He translates the Bible into English. And he does hand copies at this point. It's after the printing press, but he uses Erasmus. He uses um, the Hebrew. He translates the Bible into English. And people are reading it for the first time. And what the priests do is they buy these books for hefty prices. And they burn them. Because... People are not supposed to have God's word in their own language. They should be reading from the Vulgate, from the the Latin Vulgate that they can't read. They should just be hearing it from a priest. So William Tyndale says this just prophetic, really cool thing. I think this is so neat. He he says, um, he says, uh, I I hope that one day, I, I can't find the exact quote, but he says, one day people will or the, the word will be so common that even the, the kid who's plowing the field will know more than the priest. And the point of that is anybody can read it. You can actually know God. You don't have to depend on the priest. And he looked forward to that day. He's like, he's like go ahead, burn them. I hope that one day all of these are going to be available to the common person. And today, uh, we, we are the recipients of all of this hard work, of the deaths of people, of the, the faithful transmission of scripture, people copying it down for centuries and centuries, thousands of years, we have in our hands that exact book that people have died for. And we have faithful manuscript evidence that shows that what we have is not some kind of telephone game gone wrong, that way in the, now that we're way into the future, we can't, we don't know what we had, uh, what was written back then. But we know that what we have is what was written. So we can have confidence in God's word. So why does this matter? This should give us confidence that God inspired for men to write, for what, this should give us confidence that what God inspired men to write is what is in our hands. And just like the Catholic Church was trying to keep people from knowing the scriptures personally, we should, we should value the fact that we can know God personally. We believe that Jesus has revealed himself to us. C.S. Lewis has this picture of, he calls it the Grand Canyon, or this chasm, this huge hole that is separating God from men. And that, that chasm is sin. It separated us. But God has breached the chasm. He's come across the Grand Canyon, so to say, And he has given us his very words that lead us back to him. And that is what you have in your hands. And what we're going to be looking at throughout this this series of the next month is how we got the Bible. It's not how we got the Bible. It's why the Bible is the way it is and how you can read the Bible. It's the most precious thing in this whole world. It gives us life for today. It gives us instruction and through it, We have a relationship with Jesus. We can trust that the Bible that we have today is faithful to the old manuscripts. We can have confidence that it is true. 
and the testimonies are true. So we'll talk about that in the days to come. But thank you for thank you for listening. We're going to close this time in prayer.